So I think Dr. Bain's story teaches us about the confidence of a pro-life doctor, their skill in managing risk, even the unseen risk, and the humanity that all goes behind it. This is Caring for Both, a curbside consult series by the American Association of Pro-Life Obstetricians and Gynecologists, where experts offer insights on what it means to provide evidence-based, life-affirming health care to both pregnant women and their preborn children. We upload new episodes every Thursday. I'm your host for today, Miriam Diallo. This is going to be another two-part conversation, the second part of which will be uploaded next week. Today I'm joined by Dr. Grattan Brown. Dr. Brown is a Catholic theologian with a background in philosophy and literature. During the past 25 years, he has written about bioethics and served on various hospital ethics boards. He received a Doctor of Sacred Theology at the Pontifical Lateran University in Italy and has served as an Associate Professor of Theology at St. Charles Seminary in Philadelphia and at Belmont Abbey College in North Carolina. He helped launch Thales College in Raleigh, North Carolina, and currently teaches theology to high school students in Alexandria, Virginia. At the beginning of this year, Dr. Brown launched a new project to publish the stories of pro-life medical professionals. The series aims to highlight the human face as well as the professional excellence of pro-life doctors, nurses, and midwives in response to inflammatory pro-choice rhetoric that erupted after Roe was overturned. We'll be talking about this series today, uh, which can be found on the website of pro-life organization Rehumanize International. Dr. Brown, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Thank you for the invitation. Delighted to be here. Absolutely. So before we jump into the the writing series, uh, can you first tell us a little bit about your academic work and career? Sure. I got interested in bioethics in graduate school in a course on the virtue of justice. And the professor used to illustrate his points by with bioethics examples. And I just got so interested in those examples that I read up more on the topic and, and took some courses. Uh, then I, I decided to volunteer in a cancer hospice, figuring that I should probably understand how all this stuff plays out in the clinic. I wrote a doctoral dissertation on conscience in medical institutions. And then, as you mentioned before, I served for about 10 years on a hospital ethics committee at Atrium Health when I was down in Charlotte, uh, North Carolina. Uh, This is not exactly an academic thing, but uh, my wife and I have three teenage daughters, and I can see how the culture is difficult to grow up in, and, and abortion has impacted that culture. So... There's some idea of of my background and my interest in this topic. That's great to know. Yeah, and and certainly your your background gives you uh, really important perspectives in this post-Roe era. So that takes us to this series. Uh, How did you become interested in partnering with medical professionals for for this project that you're currently writing? Well, like a lot of people, it was Dobbs overturning Roe versus Wade. And I was so appalled by the misinformation and the fear-mongering from the pro-choice side after that Supreme Court decision dropped that I decided to write about it. And then I thought, well, 
we should hear from the people who've been practicing according to pro-life standards in a row-shaped profession. And those are the pro-life OBGYNs and doctors and nurses and midwives. And I can remember thinking, you know, we heard this misinformation. You know, we heard women are going to die from ectopic pregnancies and other complications because they won't get the medical care they need. And I thought, well, no, they won't. I mean, women never needed Roe versus Wade to get treated for ectopic pregnancies in the first place. That happened in the 60s and the 50s. And they don't need Roe now. Um, so that was the first thing. But then I started thinking, well, why are these doctors saying that they are confused? Uh, why are they thinking that they can't provide medical care in emergencies when they doctors before them, before Roe, were certainly able to do so? And I thought, well, part of the reason is poorly understood law, maybe poorly written law that needs to be changed. But behind that is poorly understood ethics. And 50 years of Roe versus Wade have left medical professionals less certain about the ethics of abortion than they were before Roe. Um, and so I think you can find good evidence of this confusion in the use today, the use of abortion to eliminate elevated risks when those risks can be managed. Uh, there's, a, there's a really good story in the series by Dr. Stephen Blaha. Um, he had a case, uh, a woman presented with P-PROM uh, at about 18 weeks uh, pregnancy. So at that point, the baby's not viable. And, but the longer the pregnancy continues, the better the child survival rate. So depending upon the week the child is born, you know, there's anywhere from a 20% to a 90% survival rate. There are a lot of other risks, uh, most of which are in the 30 to 50% range. The risk of infection is less than 50%. The risk of sepsis is about 5%. So the baby probably survives, and the mother almost certainly will survive. So Dr. Blaha explains the risk. He has to say that termination is a legal option but he purposely emphasizes the benefits of continuing the pregnancy. Um, but compare this to the recommendation that you're likely to hear, you know, after 50 years of Roe versus Wade, you're going to hear uh, other doctors might say, PPROM elevates your risk, so abort. Well, that's not what Dr. Blaha did. And, you know, a family has a baby because of it. Uh, the same thing happens to, to disabled kids, and there's a story in the series about Down syndrome. Uh, but there's an idea of how, of how I, I got the idea for this project in the first place. That's good to know. Yeah, and I did read that story by Dr. Blaha. Uh, and you mentioned how 50 years of Roe has left many medical professionals confused about ethics and kind of blurring that line, that distinction. Um, and that theory seems intuitive to me as well. Um, also, medical professionals and lay people alike have been concerned that post-Roe abortion laws in certain states may restrict physicians from being able to treat pregnancy complications like PPROM. I know you're not a medical professional, uh, but from the perspective of ethics, what would you say is the distinction between induced abortion and treating conditions like PPROM, just to help clear things up for people who are confused? 
Mm-hmm. Well, this kind of ethical distinction goes back thousands of years. I mean, the ethical problem is basically, what do you do when you're between a rock and a hard place? There's a serious problem. There are no good options, but you have to act. And the classic case is, you know, take, imagine yourself in the ancient world. You know, you and your people are being attacked and you fight back uh, and you kill some of your enemy in the process. Well, from ancient times, modern times, people recognize the difference between killing your attacker and attacking others. So in the Middle Ages, St. Thomas Aquinas articulates the principle of double effect based on this underlying distinction that humanity has recognized for thousands of years. And the principle of double effect, basically, it applies to a situation in which your action will have an evil effect or evil effects as well as good effects. And the principle basically helps you work through when is it okay to perform that action. And the first thing you need to ask yourself is whether the action itself is morally good. If the action isn't morally good, then don't do it. Then the second thing you have to ask yourself, uh, do you intend the good effects and not the evil ones? And then you have to ask, are you using the evil effects in order to produce the good ones? If you are, then basically what you're doing is saying, I'll do evil so that good may come of it. And that's not acceptable. And then the fourth thing you need to ask yourself with the principle of double effect is, is it worth it? In other words, do the good effects outweigh the evil ones? So take ectopic pregnancy. You know, a procedure that that removes an embryo from the place where it's causing harm to the mother is ethically good. Now, there are a number of different particular procedures that people use with ectopic pregnancy. And people disagree about, you know, whether it's just removing the embryo or or killing the embryo. But let's suppose there, there are procedures in which it's quite clear that you move the embryo without causing its death. And you would implant the embryo if you could somewhere else. Well, that's not the same as killing because you're really moving or removing the embryo from a place where it's causing harm to the mother. Now, if a patient or the family member happens to say that they didn't want the child anyway, well, then requesting the procedure would be killing because of their intention. But the doctor didn't do anything wrong because the procedure itself is good and saving the woman's life is a great good. So there's the basic distinction that operates between an induced abortion where someone doesn't want the child and chooses to end his life versus uh, treating emergency complications in, uh, you know, in, in pregnancy or labor and delivery. That's really helpful. And uh, this definitely falls in line with something that a previous guest of ours has said. And I, I believe, uh, 
I'll have to look up which episode number, but it's Dr. Jeff Wright talking about uh, what is not an abortion. And he does mention that it hinges on intent. The, the, the definition of induced abortion hinges on intent. Um, and if you want a more medical perspective from a, a maternal fetal medicine uh, specialist, feel free to listen to that episode. Um, also, I'll note that we do have an upcoming episode that will be published after this one about PROM specifically. Um, so be sure to keep an eye out for that. Uh, yeah, so really quickly moving on to uh, another hard case. Uh, you have several hard cases mentioned in the stories published so far. Uh, one of them is by Dr. Susan Bain, who's an Applog board member and previous guest on this podcast. Uh, I found her story really interesting because she draws an analogy between two experiences that she had within the same year. Uh, the first experience was learning of her father's terminal cancer diagnosis, and the second experience was in her medical practice treating a pregnant patient carrying a child with a life-limiting diagnosis who would die shortly after birth. Uh, from your perspective, Dr. Brown, what do we learn from Dr. Bain's story? Well, I've learned a lot from Dr. Susan Bain. Uh, she's written quite extensively, um, especially down in North Carolina and some of her local papers, uh, and participated in a number of conferences. Uh, so I've benefited a lot from conversations with Dr. Bain. In this story, uh, the one on the site, she tells the story of a woman named Crystal who's carrying twins. And one of the twins is diagnosed with anencephaly. Now the doctor delivering the diagnosis, not Dr. Bain, uh, talked about abortion as one of the standard options. Well, Crystal didn't want an, ab an abortion, so she goes to Dr. Bain. Uh, and as she's telling the story that this abortion offer stood out to Dr. Bain because, as you mentioned, uh, during the same time period, her father was diagnosed with stage four cancer. Well, nobody offered him euthanasia, even though it's legal in some states. And the point here is that 50 years of Roe versus Wade have turned abortion into a standard of care. And in the article we published, Dr. Bain pulls out the policy language of the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, better known as ACOG, uh, just to show that, well, this abortion has now been turned into a standard of care. So there's the first thing, but there's some more positive, uh, there's some more positive lessons to be learned from Dr. Bain's story. And here are three of them. Uh, first of all, disability is not a reason for abortion. Uh, Crystal shows it's a reason for love, but he, and even when it's difficult. Uh, the second thing you learn is pro-life medical professionals can manage hard cases without abortion. And you know, this story shows one way you can do it. And lastly, from a more philosophical and human perspective, understanding humanity is just as important as understanding science and medicine. So here's the story, and it's a, it's a hard case already, but it turned out to be harder than expected because the life-threatening complication emerges during the delivery. And it's a good story to tell because the life-threatening complication for the mom is exactly the kind of risk that pro-choice doctors are avoiding when they recommend abortion early on. So Crystal, the mom, wanted to give birth. Uh, she also wanted to know 
that Dr. Bain would do everything in her power to take care of her uh, with whatever complications would come up. And Crystal uh, also wanted to know that she wanted to love her twins as long as she could. Now, this is a challenging ask, but it's not an extravagant one. It's something that doctors are trained to handle. So here's what happened. The disabled twin named Joseph ended up living about eight hours. The delivery was a cesarean section. And the complication was that Joseph's brain was attached to the placenta. So this carries the risk of blood loss when Dr. Bain went to separate the placenta from the brain. Uh, well, in the end, and so Dr. Bain didn't discover this until she's in the middle of, of the operation. Well, in the end, the placenta separated without much bleeding and the delivery of both twins went well. So she, she had the skill to handle the operation. But what happens next shows a lot of humanity. Now, Joseph was not going to survive more than a few hours or so. And so he was put into a bassinet in the operating room. Well, his brother, the other twin, was going to survive and he was taken to the NICU. So what happened in the operating room, uh, I'll give you Dr. Bain's words as they appear in her story. Uh, here's the way she recounted it. She said, doctors can, uh, no, uh, she said, Joseph continued crying while I was finishing the surgery. I didn't like see it, seeing him lying all by himself from that bassinet. He did not go to the NICU like his brother. The plan was to make him comfortable, but he wasn't, and neither was I. As I was operating, I looked toward him in his bassinet. I called the nurse over to the operating table and whispered, somebody hold that baby. He's not going to die alone in that bassinet. Well, the nurse told me she just couldn't, and I could tell it was too hard for her to do. So I told her to find someone who could. And the child's father and their pastor came over, and the dad was able to comfort him as I finished surgery on the mom. So you might be thinking that, well, any doctor or nurse hearing a baby like Joseph crying in his bassinet would ask someone to hold him. And many probably would. But it's also true that the culture of, of abortion has created a kind of insensitivity to the child in the womb. And so many babies in Joseph's condition never make it to the bassinet at all. So I think Dr. Bain's story teaches us about the confidence of a pro-life doctor, uh, their skill in managing risk, even the unseen risk, and the humanity that all goes behind it. So that's, that's a story well worth reading. That's, that's certainly a powerful story, and it really highlights the distinctives of the life-affirming approach to medicine, which is an understanding, an unwavering understanding of the value of, of human lives, no matter what conditions, what medical conditions they might have, um, no matter how long or short their lifespan might be. Uh, all human beings are worthy of, of 
excellent medical care and of love from those around them. Um, I did have my own favorite quote from this article to to read off, um, oh, yeah? but I'll, I'll I'll pass on doing that um, just so that uh, I don't spoil the whole article. I would encourage listeners to 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 go and and read it themselves because it really really is a, a powerful article. And this has been a great first half of this conversation. I look forward to part two, where we'll cover broader aspects of this project, like takeaways for medical professionals and Dr. Brown's vision for its future. And a massive thank you to our listeners for joining us today. If you like this episode, be sure to give us a five-star rating and a review on whatever podcast app you're using to listen. If you have any topic requests, you can reach out to us on social media via the links in the description of this episode or via email at info at aaplog.org. If you're a medical professional interested in joining the AppLog community, we'd love to have you become a member by going to aaplog.org join. We exist to support your pro-life practice. We will see you next week.